truly larger-than-life personages in Richmond during the latter years of the 19th century is to be counted the pastor of Jackson Ward's Sixth Mount Zion Baptist Church, the Reverend John Jasper. He was born a slave in the second decade of the century, but his mark on Richmond's popular consciousness lasts to this day. In large measure, this is because of a sermon he first preached in 1878, The Sun Do Move and the Earth M Square. Hailed by some and vilified by others, Jasper's sermon seemed to defy modern notions of astronomy. Yet he was asked to preach it more than 250 times before his death in 1901. Our speaker's reflections on this enigmatic character will explore the context in which his audiences heard him as well as that of our own. Dr. Samuel Roberts is the Ann Borden and E. Hervey Evans Professor of Theology and Ethics at Union Presbyterian Seminary here in Richmond. He has served as pastor of the Congregational Church of South Hempstead in Hempstead, New York, and more recently as pastor of the Garland Avenue Baptist Church of Richmond. He's the author of many scholarly articles and two books, In the Path of Virtue, the African-American Moral Tradition, and African-American Christian Ethics. Connecting him to the VHS, I just found out, is kind of interesting. His son, Sam Roberts Jr., uh, who now lives in New York, actually worked here as an intern some time ago, helping us put together an exhibit on Liberia. So his son set a high bar that I hope his father will be able to, uh, <laughs> to reach. So please join me in giving a warm VHS welcome to Sam Roberts, who will speak to us about when the sun stood still, reflections on the Reverend John Jasper in his bicentennial year. Well, thanks so much, Paul, for that very warm introduction. And my thanks to the Society for inviting me to share on reflections on Jasper as well as the members of the Sixth Mount Zion Baptist Church, its pastor, Reverend Nelson, and more particularly, the historian for that church, Mr. Benjamin Ross. Mr. Ross has been the keeper of the tradition of the flame for Jasper, and I owe a great deal of gratitude to him for, in his help in preparation uh, for this lecture. You will notice on the stage an empty chair. This was John Jasper's pulpit chair. This is perhaps the first time in my life when I've been upstaged by an empty chair. <laughs> but Jasper's spirit being so large still occupies any place where he would deign to sit or where we might imagine him sitting. On Thursday morning, April the 4th, 1901, over 1,500 mourners filed into Richmond's Sixth Mount Zion Baptist Church to bid farewell to John Jasper. On the previous day, the Richmond Times estimated that between six and 10,000 persons filed past his coffin as it lay in front of the pulpit from which he had thundered forth for more than 30 years. The same newspaper noted that with the passing of Reverend Jasper, something of inestimable value had been removed from the Richmond scene, as if some catastrophic disaster had occurred. It is a sad coincidence that newspaper mourned 
that the destruction of the Jefferson Hotel and the death of Reverend John Jasper should have fallen upon the same day. John Jasper was a Richmond institution as surely as was Major Ginter's fine, fine hotel, end of quote. Who was John Jasper and how can we account for our continuing fascination with him? Those who eulogized him on that April morning affirmed that he was physically an imposing man. But beyond this physicality, some discerned attributes that were admirable, even some traits that were shrouded in the mystical. Reverend W.F. Graham, who gave one of the eulogies at his funeral, said of the man, I beheld the face of royal, masterly, honest, intellectual bearing, a broad, towering forehead, indicative of mental and brain capacity. The very brow of his face bespoke true greatness. His nose, well-proportioned, arc-like, tapering, Roman-like somewhat, which impressed me that he was a man of strength, courage, conviction, and invincible aggressiveness. And then as I looked upon those thin-cut lips and face covered with partially gray whiskers, somehow or other there came to my mind the picture of an old patriarch, an old forebear of the early Bible days, called of God to do a mighty work. Another observer remembered, I not, never saw him pass on the streets without stopping to watch the stately, independent strides of that beautifully built figure. I have seen others of both races do the same. How grand a figure was that grand old man entering and walking down the aisles of the church, hat in hand, shoulders erect, measured and gentle step. Another admirer, Reverend J.J. Woodson of Providence Park Baptist Church recalled of Jasper, he was straight as an arrow. He stood about six feet. And when he went forth on the street, he walked with measured tread. He attracted attention and excited the admiration of all who chanced to see him. To the end that even strangers who came, who had never seen him before, would turn in their tracks and gaze after him until he was lost in the distance. These observations reveal that there was much more to Jasper than met the eye. And it is the more than element that accounts for our continuing fascination with this genius of a man. This character in the true Greek sense of that word, a man in whom it seemed to many that providence had carved some distinct impression, so distinct and so compelling that all who heard and saw him were never the same, so much so that many in that era ultimately gave him license to declare over 250 times the quite improbable declaration that the sun do move and the earth am square. Perhaps we would do well to let Jasper himself give us a clue as to how we might understand and assess him as a man, even as a cultural icon. 
1883, he gave an interview to a young woman reporter from the Times-Dispatch. Her name was Elizabeth Watkins Lyons. She lived from 1855 and died in 1920. Now, she's a young white reporter, and she fascinated with Jasper during their conversation. In that interview, he declared that he regarded himself as a, quote, Moses for his people. Obviously, since Jasper would make his mark primarily as a preacher, we should not be surprised that he would couch his life's journey in religious terms. But in addition to this theologically rich point of view, there is another angle of vision that helps explain his life's trajectory as well. One of the members of his church, the eminent African-American attorney, Edward Archer Randolph, regarded Jasper in 19th century terms as a self-made man. I think Jasper would have agreed with his friend, but only on one condition. He would affirm that any advances in his life were not the result of his own power, but the power that had been given him from God. Or put it this way, John Jasper would have understood his life to be the working out of a convergence of charisma and circumstance, of gifts he received from God, which enable him to meet all the contingencies of life that came his way. Through such a prism, I argue, we are better able to understand more fully the man and how he approached the times in which he lived. Let us consider, first of all, the nature and circumstances of his birth and childhood. In the same year that the United States began its second war to assert freedom from the control of Great Britain, 400,000 human beings of African lineage were being held in slavery in Virginia. They constituted 40% of the population. In this same year, John Jasper was born in Fluvanna County, some 40 miles west of Richmond up the James River on Carey's Brook Plantation, the estate of Wilson Miles Carey. After William Carey's daughter, Mary Bell, married William Samuel Peachy, the Peachy name would thereafter be publicly associated with the estate. Now, there are two aspects of Jasper's childhood that may very well have factored into his belief that he, as a young Moses, was under the protective arm of God. In the first place, there were the circumstances of his birth. His mother, Tina, who had given birth to 23 children, was at the advanced age of 48 when he was born. Making his birth and the survival of his mother something of a minor miracle. Even the name that Jasper would be given was cast in religious terms. His father, Philip, whose own father had been brought from Africa as a slave, became himself a well-respected preacher in the Fluvanna area. While he died two months before his last child was born, he had always admonished Tina that should the child be a son, 
he be encouraged to follow his father's vocation. Curiously, Tina did not follow an expected custom of naming a male child after the just deceased father. Even in this case, one whose name was that of a disciple. Rather, she chose, it was said intentionally, the name of John, the forerunner of who? Jesus himself. But it was a second event in his post-adolescent years that must have surely convinced Jasper that God had a special favor on him. His early years were probably typical of most slave children, being put to labor as soon as possible. It is precisely for this reason that one scholar of American slavery has termed this period of life for slaves a, quote, stolen childhood, end of quote. Most slave children worked in the field, as did young John. But since the Peachy family had vast land holdings in Fluvanna County, as well as farms near Williamsburg, John and his mother were often shuttled off to other places. Thus they experienced what I have argued was an integral aspect of slavery, and that was the element of precariousness, never being sure about what would happen in the future. This is even more pernicious than the whip, never really knowing what will happen in the future. In 1825, the patriarch of the Peachy family died. Thereupon, John was hired out or leased to a succession of men in Chesterfield and Richmond County, working for a man named Peter McHenry for a year. And then in the following year, he was hired, I took, hired out to work in the coal pits in Chesterfield for a Dr. Wooldridge. In 1827, brought back to the city of Richmond and hired out to a Samuel Cosby to work in a, in a tobacco factory, then located at 16th and Cary Streets. Jasper worked in this factory six or seven years. Following Cosby's death, he was leased in 1834 to a Samuel Hargrove, who according to Jasper, was a member of the First Baptist Church and who would play a significant role in his later life. Now, when the matriarch of the Peachy family died in 1836, all of the slaves were sent to Williamsburg to be divided. In the division, John became the property of John Blair Peachy, her grandson described as a lawyer by profession and a farmer by practice. It is at this point that the narrative takes on more dark and potentially ominous shadings. John Blair Peachy owned a large plantation in Louisiana, and it was there that he intended to transport his slaves. The Louisiana slave experience was notorious for its brutality relentless labor in the near tropical heat, shortened the lifespan for many a slave, unfortunate to be, quote, sold down the river. Virginia slaves always stood a good chance of being sold out of the state, thus giving the Old Dominion the dubious title of mother of slaves. One estimate is that a half million slaves from Virginia were transported out of Virginia between the founding of the United States and the Civil War. 
but in what must have appeared to John Jasper as an act of divine intervention, John Blair Peachy himself was called to cross over the river from mortality to eternal reward. In other words, he died. <laughs> One other respect of Jasper's early life is illustrative to this element of precariousness. This is the issue of married life. Slave marriages were a rather fluid affair, done more as a stratagem to exert some point of leverage over slaves rather than a genuine concern that participants enjoy the rights of sanctified unions. The bonds were always tenuous. Rather than until death us do part, it was understood to be until distance us do part. The fragile condition of slave marriages was attested by Henry Box Brown, was his nickname, another Richmond character, who incredibly escaped slavery by having himself mailed in a box from Richmond to Philadelphia in 1849. Said Brown, no slave husband has any certainty whatsoever of being able to retain his wife a single hour. Neither has any wife any more certainty of her husband. Their fondest affection may be utterly disregarded and their devoted attachment cruelly ignored at any moment by a brutal slaveholder, as a brutal slaveholder may think fit. Indeed, this was the case with Jasper. Around 1836, just after the death of John Blair Peachy, and just before, the, I'm sorry, the, the Peachy matriarch, and just before the death of John Blair Peachy, Jasper fell in love with and married a young enslaved woman named Elvie Whedon in Williamsburg. This was in and of itself rather daring, since there is no evidence that he received permission from his owner, John Blair Peachy, to do so. Consequently, Peachy ever alert to the threat of slaves escaping in the aftermath of the Nat Turner Rebellion of 1831 was enraged and ordered Jasper back to Richmond to resume his duties as a lease slave. Under the strain of this forced absence from each other, his wife soon sent word that if he could not visit her, she would consider herself free to marry again. He got word back to her that since it was impossible, she should go on with her life. Jasper, apparently sensitive at this point to the sacred nature of his vows, made even under the lax expectations of the slave code, thought enough of the matter to secure some approbation from the members of First African Baptist Church, a fellowship with which he had affiliated himself. According to Isaac James, he took her letter before the church and inquired of the brethren what he should do. The brethren stated that since his wife had married again, they could see no reason why he would not do likewise. A second marriage followed in 1844 to one Candace Jordan. Now while the marriage produced nine children, there was a great deal of tension in this marriage. Jasper later confided to an interviewer that 
Candace was something of a shrew. <laughs> and again, following going to the fellowship, he was able to secure a divorce upon good and just grounds. Jasper's third marriage was in September of 1863 to Marie Ann Cole, widow of one Archer Cole. She had one child, a daughter named Mary Elizabeth Cole, who grew, who grew to love her new father so much that she took the name Jasper as her own. Mary Ann Cole died in August of 1874. Now, in 1892, Jasper married for the fourth and final time <laughs> to one Mary Carey, who would survive him by eight years. Since by this time Jasper was a well-known personage in the Richmond community, the newspapers fairly gushed with the good news. Even the Richmond, Times, the Richmond Dispatch in those days informed its readers, married last night Reverend John Jasper to Mrs. Mary Carey, age 59, his fourth marriage. Friday, March 25, 1892. Another daily, The Slate, noted that the couple was married at the home of the bride, 102 West Hill Street, with a deacon J.W. Turner perform performing the ceremony. Now, why do I say all this? One might say with some amusement that John Jasper did everything he possibly could to keep the institution of marriage alive and well. <laughs> Apparently, not even the searing pain he must have suffered when his first union was cruelly aborted or the unhappiness during the second could dampen his need for marital joy. This may help explain why he was so enthusiastic about responding to the Freedmen's Bureau for clergy to officiate in marriage ceremonies for former slaves in Richmond after the Civil War. Six Mount Zion Church, I believe, even has a copy of one such original marriage certificates that he blessed as a free man. Without question, it was John Jasper's conversion experience that sealed his lifelong confidence that God had called him to a special work in life. By all accounts, this conversion experience took, occurred in Capitol Square in Richmond on his birthday, July 4, 1839. He and his fellow slaves in the tobacco stemmery had been given the day off and Jasper used his time off to join the festivities. But incongruously, rather than joining in the merriment, he was seized with the conviction of his sins. He remembered leaving the square badly crippled, was his, were his words, and for several weeks thereafter found himself intermittently between despair, despondency, and confusion. This went on for six long weeks until one day while he was at work at his table, he was so overcome with the power of God that he shouted out, Hallelujah, my soul is redeemed. This shout was so loud, Jasper later recalled, that he reckoned the people all the way across the James River in Manchester heard it. His fellow workers were soon caught up in the moment and were on the verge of a general revival 
when the, when the overseer entered and unceremoniously quelled Jasper and sent him back to his workstation. But Samuel Hargrove, the factory owner with whom Jasper had been living, took a more sympathetic stance. A member of First Baptist Church, Hargrove was well aware of this born-again experience. And in his office, he embraced Jasper, the two men weeping together. In fact, according to the account recorded by Ellsworth Day in Rhapsody in Black, Hargrove gave him the rest of the day off with the admonition that he tell the good news of his conversion to all who would hear it. Jasper was not alone among persons in this evangelical born-again tradition to conflate the conversion experience with a call to preach, which Hargrove affirmed. Rebirth and call to vocation were of the same cloth. Jasper perceived the call as an invitation to an even deeper relationship with the divine. A voice spoke to him, and he knew it was God calling him to preach. This was the last thing he expected since he considered himself to be something of a sport, familiar with the girls, etc. Besides, he had never learned to read and couldn't understand how God would call him to such a liability. He wondered if this was the, was the devil trying to play a trick on him. But he was fortunate enough to have as a roommate one William Jackson, a fellow slave who knew how to write and who used a New York spelling book to teach Jasper the rudiments of literacy. Jasper had always been, had a curiosity about books. For him, they were sealed mysteries to me. For seven months, he wrestled with these signs and symbols as if attempting to break some ancient code in the universe. In his own words, he, quote, crept along mighty tedious, getting a crumb here and there until I could read the Bible by skipping the long words tolerably well. <laughs> Coming back to master them later on. I call this good economy of effort. So energized by this conversion experience and armed with a rudimentary biblical awareness, he soon gained fame as a preacher of funeral service, sermons all over the area. So with his religious experience, we are confronted with an essential paradox of African-American religion. How to explain the enslaved accepting the religion introduced to them by the slaveholders? In Timothy Smith's words, accepting the challenge to repent and believe the gospel while still under the shadow of bondage, required hard thinking. Only so could black converts deal with the ironies and hypocrisies of a situation in which Christian slave owners taught them grace, mercy, and righteousness. Picking their way through the maze of contradictions between the teaching and the practice of those who opposed them, the African Christians emerged with a deep sense of a paradox and the mystery of God's dealings with men and women. Among the great ironies in this relationship between slaveholder and slave 
is that a religion that was introduced to instill demeaning subservience could become the foundation for a profound sense of self-worth. The key was the second birth. Smith's Smith's thesis is that the first feeling the slave felt upon the conversion experience was forgiveness, awe, ecstasy, then self-respect, ethical earnestness, and hope. This helps explain the fact that many slaves and ex-slaves actually felt that their theological understanding of Christian faith and piety was superior to that of white Christians, especially their hypocritical slaveholders. It might also explain how and why John Jasper, the son of slaves, could actually minister to Confederate soldiers as they lay wounded in Chimborazo Hospital during the Civil War. While some might have regarded this gesture as ill-advised, even counterintuitive, Jasper would have justified his ministry as that of a spiritually well-endowed man sharing his spiritual largesse with those who were spiritually less off. This enabled him, I believe, to maintain a sense of dignity and agency in the midst of those whose whole enterprise of bearing arms was designed to continue the institution that held him in physical bondage. In John Jasper's logic, his existential freedom trumped any such notions. And it is a considerable irony of history to ponder the extent to which his work would redound to events that would take place after the war. One notable aspect of Reconstruction was that the Chimborazo Hospital in which he ministered to Confederate soldiers became a school for black children, a record showing that they were between the ages of four and 29. Obviously, the end of the war and liberation that its end portended for black people changed everything. But in another sense, little had changed. Even the skills that former slaves had obtained in bondage would be utilized at the whim of sullen sullen former owners. owners. Eric Forner is right to declare that slaves emerged from bondage with nothing but freedom. Yet Jasper emerged with a sense of who he was, never asking for quarter, determined to forge ahead as a man who had been endowed by God to make the most of any situation that confronted him. And so it is after the war that we see Jasper literally picking up the pieces of a rubble-strewn Richmond to begin anew. Following the fall, Jasper found work with the city, cleaning mortar from old bricks in order to rebuild the war-ravaged capital city. In July, he accepted a full-time pastorate of the Third Baptist Church of Petersburg. A year later, he went briefly to Weldon, North Carolina to organize a black Baptist church there, returning to Richmond in December of 1866 to continue his mission of picking up the pieces. And it is within this whole enterprise of picking up the pieces that his vision for founding his beloved church, Six Mount Zion, probably took shape. In the context of mass baptisms conducted along the James River and seizing upon any existing physical structure 
Six Mount Zion gradually came into existence. And the, this is a drawing of this first church. A discarded, unused remnant of a campaign to subjugate his people became the initial building for the church, a former Confederate stable, organized September 3rd, 1867 with nine founding members. Then followed a veritable wilderness journey amidst the unwelcoming terrain of post-Civil War Richmond. To accommodate the growing congregation, the meeting place successfully moved from the stable to a cabin, to a carpenter's shop at 4th and Carey Street, to a large room on Carey between 3rd and 4th Streets. And the congregation became too large for this place on March 15, 1870, the members brought, bought for $2,000 a small brick chapel on the corner of Duval and St. John Streets, which had been occupied by the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church since 1865. Finally, by 1887, the original structure had been raised in a large Norman Gothic edifice of red brick and gray stone had been constructed on the site. So from Confederate stable to this church some 20 years later. True to his nature, Jasper saw his ministry at Six Mount Zion as part of a general pattern of leadership that he would exert throughout the region. Much in the same way that his fame as a funeral orator took him throughout the region. He helped newly freed black people organize their own churches in Petersburg, Gaston, Virginia. In fact, he was, he was involved in the organization of most of the black Baptist churches in the Richmond area. His fame as a pastor was enhanced when one recalls how on one occasion he baptized 300 people in the James River in the course of four hours. His fame and popularity as a preacher was confirmed that during a sermon at Ebenezer Church in Petersburg, the church was so crowded and those outside were trying to sit on a fence that the fence actually broke. It was during these years that Jasper emerged as one of the leaders in this Richmond African-American community. He served as chaplain of the 15th Amendment Celebration Committee and held the same office for the Jackson Ward Republican Club with Six Mount Zion often serving as the meeting place for this political action group. One notice for a meeting from that period carried the following no-nonsense admonition. A meeting of the Republicans of Jackson Ward will be held tonight at Reverend John Jasper's church. Let every man be present. And only men could, present, could be present because only men could vote. He also served on the board of directors of the organizing meeting of the Colored Home of Richmond, whose expressed aim was to care for the sick, aged, and diligent, indigent colored people of the city. Now, let's move on quickly to the sermon. Of the literally thousands of sermons preached by John Jasper, the one for which he will always be remembered was the one entitled, The Sun Do Move and the Earth Am Square. 
first preached in March of 1878 at Six Mount Zion, its fame for some and notoriety for others would make his name known nationally and internationally. It's had, it had its genesis in a dispute that apparently took place between two men in the congregation on the proper interpretation of the text involving Joshua and the son. They went to their pastor to help adjudicate it, and Jasper gave notice on the previous Sunday, on the next Sunday, that he would preach on the issue. In the sermon, Jasper used the literal reading of the Bible as a fulcrum by which he could then move to a logical conclusion, but a conclusion that was clearly at odds with the scientific understanding of the cosmos. Ever since Copernicus in the 15th century, scientific orthodoxy held that the earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around. But by taking a literal reading of Joshua and the suggestion that the sun stood still, Jasper could simply infer that the sun had previously moved. Also, through a literal reading of the seventh chapter of Revelation, wherein the angels are standing on the four corners of the earth, he could infer that the earth am square. Using a rhetorical tactic that he would employ on numerous occasions, he would ask any detractor, how could an object that had four corners be round? To the seemingly learned and sophisticated, he would innocently ask, how can any textbook on earth teach that an object that had four corners be round? The sermon hit the press and by word of mouth communication like a thunderclap. The very next day he was invited to deliver it at the famed Mozart Hall in downtown Richmond. The Daily Dispatch in its March 20 edition announcing the engagement noted that Jasper would deliver his now historic as well as celebrated sermon embraced in the sententious legend, The Sun Do Move. All who have not hitherto had the privilege of hearing this gifted divine's able exposition of his peculiar theory of the movements of the great celestial luminary, named will then be afforded that gratification. No doubt due to the fame derived from the Sun Sermon, Jasper's popularity as a preacher soared. When the expected attendance at a revival meeting at the Petersburg Fairgrounds were not what had been expected, other ministers summoned among them John Jasper. And the Daily Dispatch could then note later on, should he come, he will have a big crowd to hear him. Throughout the next few years and well into the next decade, the uproar and acclaim of the sermon did not abate. There were tours of the North and other cities. And apparently in Richmond, the elite gentry found much satisfaction as they smugly regarded Jasper's performance. In a March 22, 1881 edition of the Daily Dispatch, a reporter in attendance noted a performance on the previous evening before a very large audience, both male and female of our best people. The Sunday Move sermon inevitably became grafted upon Richmond's cultural and artistic scene. 
even if it was the butt of some joking and bemusement. It was the provocal point of a ventriloquist act, if you can believe it. At a local theater, one vaudeville act had a character asking, how are you, John Jasper? How does the sun move today? Even into 1883, five years later, his fame was high on the sermon. On any given Sunday, especially when it was announced in advance that he would be preaching it, a large number of whites were guaranteed to show up. And on such occasions, Jasper could be depended upon to pay proper deference to them. On one such Sunday, according to one report, Mr. Jasper invited members of the church who occupied the Amen benches, benches to vacate the same. In doing so, he said, I would like the brethren sitting over there to let the white people have them seats. I do not know, but I expect they have some money for us. <laughs> and there are many occasions of this back and forth, this playful amusement white people being amused at, Jacks, at Jasper, and Jasper, in a sense, using them for money for the church. But there is something darker going on here as well. Many whites were drawn to Jasper precisely because he took them back to an earlier time. A Richmond paper dispatch betrayed its racist sentiments with a rather brazenly piece entitled a conjured Negro, in which a contributor from North Carolina spoke of a darkie who firmly believed in the ideas advanced by John Jasper. One must remember as well that this is the era of the lost cause and the nostalgia for a time that was gone with the wind. Other whites, such as William Hatcher, revered him because he was a preacher of the old sort. This was also the time in which Joel Chandler Harris's Tales of Uncle Remus brought warm feelings of nostalgia for countless Southerners whose nostalgia for bygone days still persisted. Well into the latter years of, Jasper, of 1880s, Jasper could still go on preaching tours and tap into this residual nostalgia even for some Northern whites. He was asked to preach that sermon, a sermon, before the Republican Convention in Chicago, as well as to a meeting of the National Bankers Association, where he was, to be sure, the butt of some derision. There were those, however, even in Richmond, who opposed Jasper and the Sundu Moves Move sermon. One such personage would be Reverend Richard Wells, pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church. Reverend Wells, one week after the sermon, sent a letter to the editor of the Richmond paper denouncing Jasper and the sermon and condemned the congregation for being so ignorant as to believe the sermon. 
He asserted that his own people at Ebenezer knew better than to believe it. The letter was signed by several of the deacons in the church, as well as two other ministers. Then the battle was on. Finally, a council of the African-American churches was convened and a truce declared. But the bad feelings continued between the two churches and the two pastors. With every subsequent rendering of the sermon, especially among local venues, Jasper delighted in poking fun at Wales in prefatory remarks. The reaction of Wales and others who signed the protest letter against Jasper should be couched, however, in a larger framework. That framework being the emerging sense of black theological education and the halting attempts on the part of those black clergy to come to terms with the implications of liberal theology and biblical criticism. The history of African-American theological education in Richmond begins in the aftermath of this period. During the period, members of the American Baptist Home Mission Society began to look to the South for educational mission opportunities. Ultimately, members of the society proposed an establishment of a national theological institute in Richmond, as well as in Washington. The branch in Washington was named Whalen Institute, named after the famed abolitionist and for former president of Brown University, Francis Whalen. Both of these institutions ultimately would join together and become Virginia Union University around 1899. So in opposing Jasper, Wells took up the burgeoning cause of African-American theological education. Like Jasper, he had been born in slavery himself, but their sensibilities with respect to approaches to the tension between the exercise of human reason and a literal reading of the Bible were quite different. Richard Wells, founding trustee of the Richmond Theological Seminary at the time of its organization in 1867. Although he did not graduate, he attended for many years. So Wells might be considered a founder, one of the founders of black theological education in Richmond. He would go on to become a revered pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church, as well as a respected community leader, as was Jasper. Jasper. Their association went back to the days after the war, both serving as officers in the Sons of Temperance and the Jackson Ward Republican Club. And to be sure, they were recognized as vocational rivals as well. The Shenandoah Herald reported on this seeming rivalry, even to the point of comparing baptisms in the James River. Captioning a piece on rivalry in baptism in Richmond, it noted how of the more than 600 converts who had been baptized in one afternoon, 480 had been baptized by Wells and 285 by Jasper. But Jasper said, but you didn't remember the time when I baptized 600 in a marathon in seven hours in the James. The feud with Jasper really did not abate. While formerly there was a truce, the antagonism was always underneath the surface. 
Jasper carried the grudge and undoubtedly Wells continued to regard the rotation theory of the sun as nonsense. As for his part, Jasper was reluctant to give or receive any meaningful sense of an olive branch. In February 1894, when a group of fellow clergy desired to come together in fellowship, he refused to entertain such a proposition unless the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church retracted in public a statement made many years ago concerning the sun theory, and no such retraction came. But while the black theological establishment could still repudiate Jasper's approach to the Bible, even a generation after his death, the same clergy still accorded him a place of honor within the cultural legacy of the Richmond community. The esteem with which Richmond's black intellectual and theological establishment held Jasper was a mixture of admiration mixed with condescension. Long after the feud between Richard Wells and Jasper had reached something of a truce, its embers flared again some two generations later in a most unlikely historical context, the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925. In 1925, a Tennessee school teacher named John Scopes was put on trial for teaching evolution in the public schools in violation of a state law. Soon the whole nation was caught up in the controversy, pitting the modernist approach to biblical interpretation against the fundamentalists. The debate even penetrated the African-American community in Richmond so much so that a local pastor, Reverend James S. Hatcher, pastor of the Third Street Bethel AME Church, preached a sermon, The Sun Do Move and The Earth Has Corners. A little adaptation and an accommodation to modernity, perhaps, but the same sermon. He did it as a way of declaring where his theological sympathies lay with the biblical literalist. As John Jasper had done 40 years early, earlier, and amidst much publicity and hype, Hatcher preached this sermon to nearly a 1,000 people, black and white, in his church, and by popular demand later to a racially mixed crowd at the Richmond City Auditorium. And he followed the same proofs that Jasper used some 40 years earlier. Now, what is interesting was the reaction to Hatcher's sermon. While some African-American leaders felt that Jasper's lack of education and the passage of time entitled him to some indulgence, James S. Hatcher received no such lenience from his peers. In fact, the clergy who chided him charged that he ought to have known better, having been a graduate of Alabama's state normal school with stints at Wilberforce University and Payne Theological Seminary, and having had the distinction of working for a while as Booker T. Washington's secretary at Tuskegee. The most scathing attack came from Gordon Blaine Hancock, the eminent divine who was a professor of sociology at Virginia Union 
and the pastor of the Moore Street Baptist Church. But while Hancock was cutting in his criticism of Hatcher, he managed adroitly to maintain a reverence for John Jasper's memory. Quoting him, Dr. Hatcher, said Hancock, seems to be too far removed from the Jasper time to preach the Jasper sermons. He went on to affirm, clerical gowns and theological degrees and Jasper sermons do not go together, end of quote. In summation, Hancock declared that Hatcher could not have it both ways. If Dr. Hatcher is preaching what he does not believe, he is simply commercializing the sacred memory of Jasper. If he believes what he is preaching, he forfeits his claim to a respectful hearing from intelligent people. In that one sentence, Gordon Blaine Hancock summarized the ambiguous place Jasper occupied in the minds of the black theological establishment. The memory of him might be sacred, even if they judged that his method for biblical interpretation was flawed. There could be only one Jasper who could be accorded such an honor, even from grudging admirers. Any others would be denounced as interlopers. John Jasper mounted the pulpit for the last time on Sunday, March 25, 1901. Close observers in the congregation sensed that something was amiss, and Jasper himself must have sensed that his time was not long. He walked back home that afternoon to his home in, at 11112 St. James Street. The Richmond Dispatch kept a journalistic vigil, reporting in its Tuesday edition that Reverend John Jasper, the Negro peak preacher of sundew move fame, is critically ill. His mind is wandering, and his condition is thought to be dangerous. The end came on Saturday morning, March 31st, at 10.30 a.m., when the old divine whispered his last words, I have finished my work. I am waiting at the river, looking across for further orders. After the funeral, at which his longtime rival, Reverend Richard Wells, spoke eloquently, even movingly, the Richmond Planet, an influential African-American weekly newspaper, reported that when the coffin emerged from the sanctuary, another 2,000 persons gathered in front of the church on Duval Street. The crowd waved on the four black horses as they pulled the resplendent hearse that carried him to the Old Mechanic Cemetery, or the Ham Cemetery, as it was known. Four years later, a monument was erected in his honor. On one face were his dying words, and on another were words from the biblical text that was the foundation for his last sermon. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again, John 3, 7. How fitting it was that such a text would have been foundational for his last sermon, a testimony to his unshakable belief that he had been born again, and for such a rebirth and for such a life. We remember him to this day. Thank you.
Dr. Roberts, uh, I'm Charles Nunn. Yes, how are you? Just fine. Um, John Jasper is, is buried in Woodlawn Cemetery, as is Arthur Ashe. There are people that come uh, nationally and internationally to see the, the monument to Arthur Ashe as well to go to the Historical Museum at Six Mount Zion Baptist Church. When I was executive director of missions, I tried earnestly to get the city of Richmond and Henrico County to put directional markers to Woodlawn Cemetery because it's difficult to find off of Mechanicsville Pike. Do you have any suggestions as to what we might do to, to get that uh, accomplished? Uh, because people come to Richmond, but they have difficulty finding uh, Woodlawn Cemetery where both Arthur Ashe and John Jasper are buried. Thanks, Charles, for that um, apropos question and um, moving sentiment behind it. Treasures ought to be valued. John Jasper is a treasure. He is an historical figure who was so enmeshed in Richmond's life in the 19th century that you cannot imagine Richmond without him. Even as a crass materialist, he's worth the tourist, the investment for tourist dollars. <laughs> but, even, but more importantly, as people who value history, our legacy, guarding his grave and making sure that others have access to it makes all the sense in the world as as people who are charged to be guardians of that kind of heritage. Richmond has a tourism board, I do believe. It has all, numerous agencies that are charged with, with the, the goal of, of uh, maximizing our exposure to the world. And Jasper ought to factor prominently. Um, there's talk, I believe uh, Mr. Ross and others are talking about a statue and um, I, uh, many of us need to be involved in that. If, if Bojangles can occupy this corner in Duval and uh, <laughs> Chamberlain uh, still magically in the air dancing, John Jasper could uh, have a statue erected uh, pointing heavenward and, uh, and still reminding people of his immense faith, even though uh, what he was saying um, um, elicited many uh, con controversy and criticisms, but it was the man, he himself, that uh, is, is, uh, was such an icon. So it needs to be done, thank you. Yes, yes, here, here. Question back there, yes. Yeah, three questions. Uh, do you have a record? Uh, is there a record of this sermon? And number two, uh, is it musical or lyrical? And number three, what is the gist of it? I mean, aside from this uh, sun in the box, does it have a, uh, a, a meaning? Well, the sermon, I'm told, uh, estimate was about an hour and a half long. And even one of his ardent supporters, Reverend Isaac James, who was a member of Six Mob Zion and who worshiped Jasper, said at one point that Frankly, it, it wandered quite a bit. <laughs> it wandered quite a bit. 
it must have been brilliant to behold as a, as a, as a rhetorical masterpiece. He graphically embodied much of the um, episodes. It talked about sin. It talked about salvation. It was a panoply of many theological themes, so it ran the gamut, focusing on the issue that God can do anything, including making the sun stand still. Um, so it, 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 it went now, another part. Richard Hatcher did do a transcription of it. And fortunately, there is an update of that. Uh, one of my newest best friends, I believe John Bryan, is here, has translated it into conventional English idiom. And it's available as a little pamphlet that, uh, that you can read and, and give us a greater uh, access to it. Hatcher transcribed it in dialect, and I'm of the judgment that, Hatch, that Jasper did not speak in dialect at home. He spoke in the, in the congregation in conventional conversational English. Whites hearing it would have transcribed it as dialect. Jasper spoke it as a way of communicating with his peers. And so I have a third interpretation of this dialect uh, business. There's a conventional English, there is a spoken English, and then there is the transcribed dialect. One more question. One, yes. Um, I'm interested in the support of white people or the interest of white people in the sermon, and I wonder how much of that was motivated by their own fundamentalism at this time and their own belief that God could perform miracles and their own willingness to snub the new science that questioned the authenticity of the Bible in a literal way. Excellent question. I try to, to paint the context for that. Remember, Samuel Hargrove is a fellow traveler. He's a fellow believer. He believes in the born-again experience. We're only 20 years from Darwin's um, book on the uh, evolution, and not all Americans obviously had um, read the book or understood the book, but they knew they were again it. They knew that uh, you could that you ought not challenge the conventional notion of how creation came about. So by and large, this conventional born-again experience so embedded in particularly Southern religious culture would have predisposed many whites to give him a favorable hearing. And when you have that overlay as well of, I should turn my phone up, that overlay as well of, uh, of nostalgia for an earlier time, then it seems as well that, that why they would give him some degree of credibility. So that, that's part of the context as well, yes, indeed. Please join me in thanking God.